Before uh, we get into our passage this morning, there's uh, just one thing I really would like to uh, say about some of the events of this last week. Um, I know many of you have had a difficult week, uh, but I, I don't really want to talk about all that's gone on from up here. I would invite you to come up afterwards, talk to me, talk to other elders and others who will be up front just to, to talk some of these things through with you. But there is one issue that really concerns me uh, to the point I feel like I need to say something this morning. Through all of the things that have been said over the last week, uh, some of you may have gotten the mistaken impression that we as a church take abuse, uh, we don't take abuse seriously. And I, uh, I, I'm concerned about our reputation, but what really concerns me, what I'm afraid of, is that there will be people among our congregation, especially some of you women who are in an abusive situation. And because of that mistaken perception, you might despair of seeking help. You might think, what's the use in telling anyone? If I tell anyone, nobody will take it seriously. Nobody will care. They'll just tell me to live with it. Please don't believe that. That is not true. If you are in an abusive situation, please tell someone. We will stand with you. We will stand behind you to see it stopped. And if you're an abuser, please tell someone. We will work with you to see it stopped. This church does not countenance abuse. So please understand that. And I just, my main concern is that none of you who are in that type of situation just allow it to continue. Anyway, let's get into our passage. Last couple of weeks we have been talking about how to share our faith with people, how to talk to people about uh, spiritual things. Last week we looked at Acts 17, at Paul's example. This morning what I would like to do is take a look at the Master at work. To watch Jesus as he shares with someone, someone who uh, seems to have no interest in spiritual things, someone who, uh, by her first responses, uh, seems to want to have nothing to do with Jesus or his kind. We have a chance to see Jesus gently, lovingly, skillfully overcome this woman's fears and her defensiveness by treating her with respect and dignity. You know, often the people that we most want to share with react angrily or defensively or aggressively. Well, here is a model of how we can respond. So turn to John chapter 4. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, 4th chapter. We'll start right at the beginning. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Apparently down in Judea things were heating up. The religious leaders were looking for a chance to get Jesus He was constantly being watched, constantly under pressure. Now, Jesus could handle that. 
but I'm sure it wore on him to always have to be verbally fencing, always on your guard. Now, often Jesus did not avoid controversy. He looked for it. He faced into it. He created it. But there were times when he chose to walk away from conflict because the timing wasn't right. And this, the time wasn't right. He later on faces into these religious leaders when it's the appropriate time. But this time he heads back up toward Galilee. Now Galilee is up in the northern part of Palestine. You had Judea down below. And right in the middle was an area of Samaria, the Samaritans, who were an ethnically and racially different people than the Jews. So Jesus headed up toward Galilee, about 20 miles north of Jerusalem. He stopped at a city called Sychar. He sat down to rest. Jesus was probably tired emotionally from the tension with the leaders down in Judea. He was physically tired from the walk. He was hot. He was thirsty. He was hungry. So he sat and rested. Now, his disciples had gone into town to buy some hamburgers or something because everybody was hungry. It was about lunchtime. Do you ever wonder why all 12 of them went into town together instead of just a couple of them to, to buy food? Some people suggest it's because Jews were not welcome in Sikar. That's not their turf. And so they stayed together in a group for protection. But Jesus stayed back to rest. Anyway, here uh, is Jesus resting Finally getting a chance to sit down. He's hot, he's tired, he's hungry. He's in a nice, cool, green little spot. Finally getting a chance to let his muscles relax. To enjoy sitting there alone with his father. Suddenly he sees this woman coming with a jar. And I can imagine that his emotions must have fallen with a groan. Oh... I imagine his, his, his mind and his body started screaming into his thoughts. You know, just close your eyes, let her come, get her water, and go. You're tired. You don't have to deal with this. God doesn't ask more from you than what you've got. He's not that unfair. Just let it go by. But Jesus doesn't listen to those feelings. He's not controlled by them. He Instead, he lays aside his needs in order to love this woman. I realize this must have been a little bit awkward for this woman as well. The reason she's coming this late in the day, around noon, when it's hot, is because she doesn't want to see anybody. See, typically women would come early in the cool of the morning to gather the water for their whole day. This is a, a social time. They'd get together and talk about the latest news, what was happening in the village and in the, in the uh, uh, country, and, and discuss that among themselves, find out how each other was doing. This was a social time. The fact that this lady came later when it was hot really uh, shows that she was some kind of social outcast. She came at this point or at this late in the day because she didn't want to have to deal with anyone's attitudes. But here's this man sitting by the well. And what's worse, this guy is a religious leader, a Jewish religious teacher. I'm sure she tried to avoid his eyes, get her water, and get out of there. But Jesus spoke to her. He asked her for a drink of water. The rest of verse 7. Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? 
His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. You know, this woman is shocked. She could not understand. This was not socially, culturally acceptable. Jews do not talk to Samaritans. Jews and Samaritans don't like each other. And men do not talk to women. It just isn't done. And on top of that, a a religious teacher would never talk to a a person of questionable moral and and, and social standing. They never get caught talking to somebody like that. But Jesus breaks all the rules. Why? Well, because Jesus does not accept these cultural walls. Jesus is not a racist. He will not look down on someone because they are different than he is, or than we are, culturally, racially. He won't allow those differences to cause him not to really care about somebody. And Jesus won't allow the fact that somebody belongs to a different uh, religious group to keep him from treating that person with trust and respect and integrity. Not only is Jesus not a a racist, Jesus is not a sexist. See, the people, the men of of Jesus' day, treated women as if they were inferior. They wouldn't listen to a woman. Her opinions were worthless. They wouldn't talk to a woman. That's a waste of your breath. A, A woman is not intelligent enough to understand. But Jesus would have absolutely none of that. Jesus treated women with integrity. He treats them with respect. Not the kind of respect that uh, isolates them and patronizes them, but genuine respect. Jesus treats women as full equals. He takes their questions and their opinions seriously. He opened himself up to them as trusted friends. Finally, the... Jesus spoke to this woman because when he saw this woman, he saw a sinner. And rather than that making him hateful or judgmental, that made him hurt for her. Because sin hurts, it destroys. And he could see it was eating her heart out. When he looked into her eyes, he could see the discomfort and the disquiet of her soul. He could see her just like she really was. And he longed to help her. So you notice what he does, what his first step in reaching out to her. He asks her for something. He makes himself vulnerable to her by expressing a need, by letting her see him as needy. And we say, now wait a minute, Jesus, this isn't how it's done. I mean, we're Christians. We don't have needs. We have answers. And if we go around letting people see us as needy, they're not going to respect us. They're going to feel superior. They're not going to listen to anything we say. Jesus, you're you're, you're destroying your credibility here by this approach. But again, Jesus will not buy into our garbage thinking. He had a need. He was thirsty. So he asked her for some water. Being honest about our needs and our neediness does not damage our credibility. In fact, quite the contrary is true. It's one of the greatest impediments 
to our credibility in the world, that we keep up the facade as if we don't have needs. We're just afraid to be vulnerable. We're afraid to really engage people with our whole self. Anyway, this woman never really had a chance to recover from the shock at Jesus' request. And she, her, her normal, understandable response of, how is it that you are talking to me, is met with a peculiar response from Jesus. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. Jesus doesn't get involved in discussing the propriety of His request. Instead, He tells her that God has a gift for her. And that if she knew what it was, and knew who it was that she was talking to, she would ask for that gift right away. You know, when I come home, if I tell my, my daughters that I have a gift for them. They will ask for it right away, and they will keep asking for it and keep asking for it until I give it to them because they know me, and they know I love to give them good things. And if this woman knew Jesus, she would know that he loves to give good things, and she would have become excited about what that might be. Well, what was the gift that he was offering her? It was water, living water. Now, understandably, she thinks he's talking about water from the well that they were standing next to. You know, she can't quite trust him. Now, here's a guy that seems like he's sincere. He seems really kind. He seems like he's accepting her. But she's been hurt by a lot of guys. And so she's trying to figure out Jesus' angle. She knows he must be setting her up for something. So she... uh, responds with a challenge. She says, you don't have anything to draw with and this well is deep. How are you going to get this water? The well they were standing next to is probably 130 feet deep. That's a deep well. You can't just lean over and scoop the water out. Then she goes on and she begins to get offensive. I think she's literally, genuinely trying to offend him. She says, who do you think you are? Do you think you are greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well? See, even calling Jacob, who's also known as Israel, our father, would have been enough to get any Jew upset. Because Jacob is the father of Israel, of the Jews, not the Samaritans. This would have got any Jew steamed. See, I think she was trying to force his hand, trying to provoke him into revealing his game. But Jesus doesn't get angry. He doesn't, he doesn't fight back. Even though it must have hurt him for her to treat him with disrespect or distrust or aggression. That hurts when people act that way to, toward you. Especially when you are sincerely caring about them. But Jesus doesn't respond. She can't quite trust him. She doesn't understand. But he understands her perfectly. He knows the insecurity and the years of pain that have gone in to to making her so wary and so defensive. So Jesus helps her understand. He tells her that the water that he offers isn't like the water from the well. The water that he offers really satisfies. The water from the well can't. You just have to keep coming back for more. And the water that he offers, he offers it on the inside, not the outside. And that water on the inside just bubbles up into eternal life. Life as it was intended to be. 
Well, water is a, an amazing substance. It covers the majority of the surface of the earth. It insulates the earth. It filters the atmosphere. It is absolutely essential for life on this planet. You know, a person can go 30, 40 days without food, in spite of what your teenage son may say. But four days without water and you're dead. Water is precious. And, and in Israel, where this was taking place, water was, was scarce. It didn't rain all that much. Drought was common. In fact, today, the Israelis don't allow their underground rivers to run into the sea. They stop them and pump the water back over the land because water is so precious. It is so necessary for life to be sustained. You see, this woman knew that. She knew that water is absolutely essential for life. Well, in the same way, spiritual water is essential for spiritual life. Without the water that only Jesus can supply, you cannot live spiritually. That's not religious bigotry any more than it's bigotry to say that uh, you can't live without physical water. It's simply a fact. Without the life, without the water that Jesus supplies, no one can live Spiritually. Fortunately, Jesus wants to give it. He longs for people to experience the refreshment, the satisfaction of this water that He gives. He longs for you to experience eternal life bubbling up inside you, satisfying, quenching that thirst. The thirst He's talking about here is far more profound than a physical thirst. He's talking about the thirst for love, the thirst for acceptance, to be valued, to be, to be secure in that relationship, to be important. He's talking about a thirst for the kinds of things that only a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, based on trust, can supply. Well, I think uh, this woman is starting to understand. She's starting to believe Him. But she just can't get over that defensiveness. I'm sure she had never really run into somebody like Jesus before. Here was a guy that when you tried to hurt him, you could. I mean, it hurt. She could see that it really hurt. But he didn't hurt back. Still, she knew men hurt you. This was a man. So I think her, her, her question then becomes sarcastic. She says, well, give me this water so that I don't have to walk all the way out here to draw water. At that point, Jesus drops a bomb on her. He says, go get your husband and bring him back. Verse 16. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. It's obvious Jesus knew about her life, about her situation. We don't know how he knew. Maybe the father told him he was a prophet. Maybe somebody else told him. But anyway, why does he ask this woman to go get her husband, knowing full well she has no husband? I mean, she knows... He knows, so why bring it up? Won't that just embarrass her? Won't that just hurt her and she's already wounded? 
Won't that, won't that just cause her to be more defensive? Well, Jesus had no desire to embarrass her. But he needed her to know that he knew about her life. See, she was acting defensively. She was hiding from him. She was afraid to let him get too close because she thought if he gets too close, he'll see me like I am and he'll want nothing to do with me. Here was a man who was accepting her, a man who was talking with her about very important things, a man who really seemed to care and to respect her. And so she assumed he must not know about me and my life because if he did, he wouldn't be treating me this way. He wouldn't continue to respect me. He wouldn't, he wouldn't hang around. You see, Jesus already knew. And he chose to continue to accept her, to love her, to respect her. Jesus had to get rid of that fear of rejection that was causing her to respond so defensively. He needed to demonstrate that he saw her just as she really was. But he still accepts her. He still loves her. Now this is what grace is all about. This is the miracle of grace. You know, logic tells us that we need to clean up our lives before God will accept us, before Jesus will accept us. But grace contradicts that. And it tells us that Jesus loves you just the way you are. And we're all afraid of rejection, and so we hide from Him. We've learned, like this woman, to protect ourselves by rejecting others before they can reject us, or doing something uh, that will cause them to reject us for what we, we do, so they never have the chance to reject us for who we are. But Jesus doesn't take the bait. He doesn't reject. He knows you. He knows your life. He knows what you've done. He knows your sins far more than you know them, far more of them than you're aware. And still, He wants to give you water. He doesn't ignore your sins. He doesn't excuse them. He doesn't deny them. He loves us too much to just overlook our sins. Instead, He's willing to face into them. To love us enough to come straight at us. You know, we aren't really loving like Jesus when when we pretend that sin is okay. Jesus didn't love that way. Jesus comes straight at us. Because if we fail to see sin for what it is, it continues to destroy us and it continues to make us unwilling to let anybody close, including Him. So what Jesus does is He combines that unconditional love and acceptance with His uncompromising honesty. Jesus will face into your sins, and He will forgive them if you'll trust Him. That's the only way to get rid of them, to be free of them. If we confess our sins, that is, call them what they are. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a a critical point to understand. 
Because see, our society has begun to look at any time that we call sin, sin. They, they, they have begun to look at that as hateful and as, as judgmental. It is not. Who wants a doctor who's afraid to call cancer, cancer? Who wants a doctor who will say that that cancer is a harmless little lump? To do that is to condemn us to death. We want a doctor who will call it what it is and help us be rid of it. You see, we have a moral obligation to call sin, sin. We also have a moral obligation to do so in a context enveloped, surrounded by love, and to never reject or despise someone because of their sin. And we have a moral obligation to face into our own sins. We are right in calling the sins of our society sin. We need to love the people around us enough to be honest about what we see going on. We need to to say that abortion is wrong. We need to decry the tendency in the media to glorify unhealthy and destructive lifestyles. And to, to, to desensitize us to violence and sexual perversion. We need to point out that selfish preoccupation with one's own needs and and desires and feelings is destroying families, the very fabric of our society. We need to be clear and honest with people that a homosexual lifestyle destroys a person's personality. See, all of these things are true. And I think we as a Christian community have spoken clearly. We've made it clear where we stand. But do we do so out of love or out of fear? Do we do so with a deep, genuine compassion for those who are being destroyed by these sins? And are we willing to face our own sins? Are we willing to listen to our critics as they point out the sins that we continue to accept and embrace in our own lives, in our own communities, our, our, our Christian communities, our churches. You know, sometimes we have to get past the anger and the hatred and the way they say it, but we've got to hear the clear message, the truth that's in that message. Sure, we've got to be concerned for the sins of our society, but we've got to be even more concerned about the sins in our own lives and in our own churches. Gossip has to stop. We've got to repent of our tendency to hate gays and to treat them with disrespect and lack of dignity. We've got to repent of our willingness to accept in our homes and in our churches abuse of any kind, physical, sexual, emotional. Racism in any form cannot be tolerated. Got to be willing to look straight at ourselves and realize that materialism is strangling us. We spend all of our resources feathering our own nests, and we have very little left to give to the advancement of the kingdom of God and to those who are in need. We can no longer just look away and ignore the poor in our community and in our world. We cannot be involved in the oppression of women. We cannot continue to be hard-hearted and and critical of victims of injustice. 
You know, this whole area of victimization is important. Because we either respond by pushing it away and denying it and saying it's not happening when we see somebody who's been victimized by society, by injustice, or we, we on the other hand, try to coddle and, and, and are so careful that, that we don't help them move beyond where they are, move beyond being a victim and help them grow in, in strength and wisdom. See, this woman that Jesus was talking to had been victimized to some degree by her society. She lived in a society in which a woman could not live on her own. She couldn't stand on her own. Uh, She had no legal rights. She was open to economic, financial exploitation without a man. So this woman may have felt a compelling pressure to have a husband. And over and over she tried, and over and over her marriages failed. Over and over men used her and hurt her. And as we look at Jesus' response, we see that, that balance of soft, gentle compassion combined with an honest, respectful, straightforward confrontation with her sin. She lo- or Jesus loves her too much. He respects her too much to ignore her sin, and so he speaks to it even though she is wounded, even though this will hurt. And he cares deeply about that hurt. You see, caring about someone and gently, sensitively addressing their sins go hand in hand. Jesus knew that this woman was looking for fulfillment in life. In the wrong places, she was confused about where she was hunting for it. She was looking for it in a man. She was looking for the perfect man. A man who would love her and respect her and talk to her and value her and protect her and fulfill her. But none of the men she had ever married had fulfilled her. Each one looked like he was going to be the right one, but each one let her down. Now she'd given up entirely on on marriage and was just living with a man. See, people, most people are like this woman. They're looking for refreshment and satisfaction and, and, and healing and fulfillment in life. But they're looking in all the wrong places. Jesus saw that in this woman. And he loved her enough not to just leave her a victim but to compassionately face into her wrong strategies and show her where real life can be found. See, people are looking for life in all kinds of things. They're looking for fulfillment in all kinds of things. They're looking in in, in money and in power and prestige. and uh, Some are looking in, in alcohol. Some are looking in trying to control their family or they're looking for a man or a woman or, or children. But none of these things can well up inside you into eternal life. Life that is refreshing, satisfying. Fulfilling life. Life as it should be. Well, where are you looking? If you don't look to Jesus, you will never find it. Well, on with our story. Jesus had demonstrated his acceptance by telling her about her sin while still respecting her. 
Now this is, it is what grace is all about. God's grace, His acceptance. He faces into our sin, but He does it while still accepting us. He creates the only safe enough context and environment for us to be able to face our sin because He continuously, constantly accepts us. And this woman's starting to understand that acceptance. But I think she needs to challenge it, to, to test it one more time. I think this next question is her final test. Verse 19. Sir, said the woman, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Uh, There may have been a hint of sarcasm in her uh, statement, I see that you're a prophet, but I don't really think so. But what she does is she brings up a doctrinal issue, one that always gets Jews And Samaritans polarized on the opposite side of the fence. See, she says that the the Samaritans, who really didn't pay much attention to their Bibles, they say that the place to worship was Gerizim, where they were. But the Jews, they knew that the right place was Jerusalem, because that's what the Bible says. It's a clear doctrinal issue. Jesus knows his Bible. Jesus knows where the right place to worship is. So why doesn't he just tell her? Well, because he realizes, he knows that that's not the real issue for this woman. The real issue, the real question is, is Jesus going to continue to respect her and accept her in the face of this controversy? Jesus, what he does is he responds, he demonstrates that acceptance, that that continued respect for her, by sharing with her a profound new perspective. He doesn't ignore her question, but he moves it from a theological issue to a heart issue. In verse 21, Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. See, God is looking for people who will trust him, who will be honest with him, who will seek truth about themselves and about him and about life. He's looking for people who will love him, who won't be focused on ritual and tradition and all of that stuff, but will be focused on him in spirit and in truth. And in this Samaritan woman, Jesus found such a person. And who would have thought that? I mean, here is an immoral Samaritan woman, a hard, defensive, social outcast. But you see, Jesus saw past all of that, saw through all of that, saw to her heart, saw her hunger for him, saw the desire of her heart. And so Jesus shares himself with her. He reveals himself to her. He tells her something he hasn't told anybody else. He tells her something he doesn't even tell his own disciples for another year and a half. He tells her something that meets the deepest longings of her heart. He tells her that he is the Messiah. He is the one that she 
and everyone else in the world has always been looking for. Verse 25, the woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. You know, what joy, what release, what freedom as all those years of of guilt and confusion just rolled away. Here is what she had always been looking for. She had found what she was looking for. See, this is always our Lord's desire to show himself to us, to to share himself with us. And invariably that takes us through a process, a very difficult process of seeing ourselves, seeing our sins, seeing our needs. But if we're willing to go through that process, again, what unspeakable freedom wonder as we see him as he is, as we catch a glimpse of his glory. See, that's what we were made for, to look upon God and see him as he is and be transformed by that process as we're overwhelmed by the beauty of his love and his grace. Anyway, our story goes on to tell the disciples coming back and they wonder what Jesus is doing talking to this woman. But because they don't really want their own prejudices and their own wrong strategies challenged, they keep their questions to themselves. And we see this woman in her excitement leaving her water jar behind, unable to keep her joy to herself. She runs back to her village, no longer concerned about what others will think about her, telling everyone who will listen, come see the man told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? See, she wanted them to come see Him. She wanted them to see Him like she had seen them. Him. Worship, praise, is not an obligation. It is the unstoppable outpouring of having seen God as He is. This woman couldn't help but tell others. She couldn't help but want to share her experience with others. She couldn't help but worship and praise Him. Now Jesus hadn't really told her everything she had ever done, but to her it seemed like He had. Because He had cut through all the trappings. He had cut through all of her defenses and her armor. He had cut through to her heart and had healed that heart. And cutting through to her point of need, her need for Him and the water that only He could provide. Jesus set her free. This woman becomes the most aggressive evangelist we've seen in the New Testament, at least up to this point. She becomes the spiritual leader of her village, bringing them all out to see Jesus, because she wants them to see Him as He is. And they do. We're told that Jesus stayed with them for two more days, and at the end of that time they said to her, We no longer believe just because of what you said, Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. They saw him for themselves. This sermon was supposed to be about evangelism, and really it is. You know, as we watch Jesus love this woman, as we watch him share himself with her, as as we look at this over and over, and, and I encourage you, read this story over and over. Because there's so much there that we just can't focus on 
this morning. As you do that, you'll grow in your understanding of how he shared with people and how we can do it like him. But what I want to do in conclusion here is make a couple of points. And I think we have to start by identifying with this woman before we identify with Jesus. Because the starting place for us in sharing our faith is for us to see Jesus as he is. And that always requires that we be willing to see ourselves, to face our sin and our need, to let him cut through our defenses and our armor, cut through to our heart and lay it bare and reveal the the, the sinful, self-protective strategies that we use. And having revealed those and having exposed those, let him show us himself. He will show us, as Brennan Manning put it, that he is crazy in love with you. And when we see that, telling somebody about him is exactly what we want to do. And when we do tell someone, we'll find some people who are very defensive. We'll find some who are... um, are annoyed or offended by our uh, excitement. They will somehow view, interpret our, our loving desire to share the joy and the freedom that we've got in Christ, that we've found in Christ, is somehow putting them down, somehow a strategy to hurt them. Well, that's when, like Jesus, we can take their shots. Let it hurt and respond with unconditional love and acceptance. We can look past their, their prickly exterior and see to the, the terrible thirst deep in their heart. By the power and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, we can refuse to be self-protective. We can be honest with them. We can really engage them fully. We can even face their sins, calling their sins what they are, but doing so bathed in love and in, a, in a, and acceptance, telling them that it was for those sins that Jesus died, that he loves them that much. See, the, the goal in all of this is so that they will see Jesus as he is. They will see his, his compassion, his gentleness, but his straightforward, respectful honesty with them, the integrity with which he treats them. He is the one that can meet their need. He is the one that can meet that thirst that they've been seeking to quench all of their life, but remains unsatisfied. He is the one that can clean out all of the sin and the guilt and free them to to experience the joy and wonder at finding the lover of their souls. He's the one that has always known them, that still knows them and loves them. He is the one that they have always been looking for. Let's pray. Lord, you are the one that we are looking for, that our hearts cry for. Like this woman, Lord, it is so hard for us to trust you enough to let down our defenses, to trust you enough to let you get close. Or we can't give up our strategies. But I ask you, Lord, 
to love us enough to keep coming after us. Praise you that you woo us, that you don't just get hurt and walk away when we resist your love, when we don't understand it and don't accept it, but that you're willing to suffer that misunderstanding and to keep coming and to keep loving. Lord, we praise you. I ask that you would give us the courage to face ourselves so that we might experience the rapture, the delight in seeing you as you are. Pray this in your name. Amen.